0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub? because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp. We are the safe haven for ex-evangelicals, church burnouts, spiritual refugees, and especially those who want to explore spirituality and follow the love ethic of Jesus. But outside evangelicalism or organized religion. Today we are very fortunate to have a real scholar and theologian with us, Thomas J. Ward. Tom is an author, theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary uh, studies. Uh, he's an award winning author and editor of more than 30 books and an award winning professor. Uh, he directs the Northwind Theological Seminary Doctoral Program in Open and Relational Theology. Tom, welcome to the podcast.
2: Mm, thanks. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, I am too. I'm very honored to have you uh, on on today for several reasons. Uh, one, I'm sure we'll have an amazing and intellectually stimulating conversation uh, with an astute mind. And that's it's you, tough. not me. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I was really honored that you wrote an excellent endorsement for my book and uh, Breaking yeah. Yeah. So Congratulations really that page. So I appreciate that. Thank you so mm. much.
2: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Okay. Um, we're going to talk about a lot, mostly probably about your newest book, uh, The Death of uh, Omnipotence and the birth of amipotence. I don't know if I said that right, but <laughs> <laughs> you, you coined the term, so how do you pronounce it?
2: <laughs> I say it amipotence.
1: Oh, amipotence. Okay. Yeah, there you go. All right. And before we get to that, we'll hear uh, some of your background and how you came to be uh, a theologian and, and an author. And And I did hear a rumor that you have been through two heresy trials. Is that true? <laughs>
2: Well, I'll explain the details. It's mostly. Oh, you explain the details. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Okay. I just want to let you know that uh, if you have done that, if that's true, then you are in the running. For the uh the Heretics Hall of Fame. So, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and you are in good company though. Uh, you know, we love we love heretics here on the Spiritual Brew Pub, by the way. And you're in good company. I think uh, Jesus was probably considered a heretic, Paul and several of the church fathers <laughs> and many uh others today. So uh, we'll get into that. But let, let's uh before we get into your the subject for your book and and uh talking about um you know things like uh Uh, whether God is all-powerful or not, uh, and uh, the problem of evil in the world and things like that. Um, Why don't you share a little bit about your story and your religious background and how you got to where you are now?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I grew up attending the Church of the Nazarene Congregation in Othello, Washington, which is in Eastern Washington. You probably know the yes, general Yes, I've, I've been there yeah. before. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I
1: live in Washington. Yep.
2: <laughs> I was a person that took my faith very seriously as a kid. And so did my family. Uh, I eventually became a kind of an evangelist with Campus Crusade for Christ. Oh, wow. Uh, gung-ho kind of a person. And then my senior year of college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time, really took seriously arguments from atheists, agnostics, people in other religious traditions. And in reading that material, I had to admit that I didn't have as good a grounds as I thought I had for believing in God. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting in the car and me looking at her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. Wow. And um, my reasons for rejecting belief, or at least not being confident in any belief, uh, were intellectual. It Mm -hmm. was, you know, I could definitely see things wrong with the church and I'd been hurt, but it wasn't that sort of thing that led me to where I was. It was discussing arguments for and against God's existence. But I eventually came back to belief in God based primarily on two things. One, I had this search for meaning in life, and I didn't think my life or life in general could have ultimate meaning if there wasn't something like a ground of meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and and other people ought to love as well, Right. that in some sense love was the answer yeah right but i i couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't this ultimate personal lover that most people call god and based on those two ideas i slowly started to build back a kind of belief structure that i'm not certain about but i think is more plausible than right. um having no belief well, in God
1: at all yeah that's a that's an amazing story I definitely relate so many people relate really. to that right mm-hmm. um yeah and at, I always say what matters most and I come to the same conclusion love you know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh I mean, when people talk about the problem of evil and I often say well what about the problem of love I mean why mm-hmm. is there love in the world if there's if there's just materialistic cosmic you know, luck that that we're here. Right. You know, so, so that's, that's really fascinating. There's, I think there's things inside of us that we, that kind of guide us and so forth, but the intellectual part now that's really important. And so much of the church has ignored that. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we're discussing your book is because, Mm. you know, you don't, people like you don't ignore it. And there's, there's uh, philosophical reasons why, the standard or traditional view of God, uh, just just doesn't measure up. So right. we'll get into that. Um, so let's start with what's your definition of omnipotence? Uh, and um, how did you come to doubt it? I mean, what, what, what went through your
2: mind then? Well, I've been thinking about God's power and love for a long time, probably since I was, you know, an early teenager. And usually, or at least early on, it was under the um, auspices of trying to work out why there's evil in the world if God is omnipotent and loving. And um, I eventually came to think that omnipotence, at least understood in three ways, doesn't make sense. Omnipotence understood as God controlling everything. Which you can get that kind of omnipotence in some forms of Calvinism,
1: right? Calvinism really stresses that, Yep. yeah, sovereignty, yes. sovereignty of God,
2: yeah. That's usually sovereignty means God does everything in that yeah. tradition. I mean, right. that, I was
1: I it. was taught that in some of the churches I went to. Yep,
2: yep. Second idea of omnipotence: maybe God doesn't control everything, but God can do anything. Mm-hmm. And I came to think that that was problematic, which we can go into details. And then the third one, and this was the last kind of domino to fall for me when it comes to thinking about omnipotence. Many people think God is omnipotent in the sense that God could control anyone or anything at any time. Not that Mm -hmm. God is always controlling everything all the time, Mm -hmm. but God could could. intervene periodically to make sure something happens single-handedly. And I reject all three of those views of omnipotence.
1: Okay. All right. So that's, you just came to the, came to the uh, realization that they just don't line up philosophically or maybe in the real world when you well, think, yeah.
2: you know, it's, it's philosophically it has problems. And I yeah. began to realize that, you know, two plus two, uh, God can't make two plus two equal 397. God yeah. can't make a round uh, square. God can't decide to stop existing. These kinds of philosophical right, right. Yeah. Uh, And then it was experiential in the sense of the problem of evil. Like, you know, if God was so loving, then a God who is omnipotent would stop, you know, rape yeah. or the Holocaust right. or whatever.
1: Yeah, all the pro- the evils of the yeah. world. Right. Yeah, I got but it.
2: The last one to go was the Bible one. And mm-hmm. I think it's because I had been so conditioned to read and interpret the Bible. Through the lens of sovereignty, omnipotence, almightiness, whatever word you like, right, and to think that the Bible actually proclaimed that view or at least hinted at it, and I now no longer think the Bible explicitly justifies omnipotence, yeah. sovereignty, or almightiness right
1: we'll get we'll get into that a little in a little while, but right, that's a good that's a very good point, but there are words in the Bible that certainly appear. That uh, it says that God isn't uh, oh, i can't even say it now—omnipotent, but yeah. but we'll 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 get into that. Do they really say that, right? Yeah. So, but before we go on, um, also uh, let's get in a little bit. <laughs> I'm I'm curious about your heresy trials. So oh, you okay. had doubts. You, I mean, were this as, was this about you know this God can't or this I mean this 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 new this new uh, notion that is, is is not really new. But you're yeah. saying this is really the original. Is, was this all about this issue, these heresy trials?
2: Yeah, well, the first trial um, really didn't have explicitly to do with these issues. It kind of was more of a general thing. It was okay. a matter of uh, a college president really getting pressure to kick me out, basically. Which college uh, then, was
1: that? Do you, Can you say what college that is?
2: Yeah, Northwest Nazarene University
1: okay uh, right.
2: I still live a mile and a half from the place so I'm okay I'm, all right I haven't even moved out of the area right but in this case they were just trying to find anything to get rid of me so I had to answer 66 questions you <laughs> oh, no. know and, no. <laughs> <laughs> some of them were very specific others were quite general oh my um, god
0: is there a 66 question
1: heresy uh uh, uh. Uh, questionnaire that's official? Or...
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but the result of that was that even though, like the people who heard my case, they couldn't—they didn't actually say I was a heretic. Uh, they worried; they had some worries about my views, including what I think about God's power. But they didn't uh, declare me a heretic. Okay, all right. The uh, the president ended up figuring out another way to get rid of me based on reduced enrollment.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. They're, sure. All right. I got you. Well, yeah, they got the, they got what they wanted, but, but yeah. by a different way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was the power of God, uh, ideas. And what else did you say? Like how you viewed the Bible or something? Oh, or?
2: one was my view of God's love. No, I don't think anyone's scripture. One uh, was my view of the virgin birth. Okay. All right. There's some other,
1: right. Some other things, right. They didn't quite line up. Right. Gotcha. Evolution,
2: I think was part of it. Anyway. Yeah. It was really not so much like here is the issue that we're getting rid of you. Yeah. It was, you know, you're just too progressive on a bunch of things. Yeah. You're too progressive. Something that.
1: So what about the second one?
2: So. Actually, there's three. <laughs>
1: oh, no. Well, well,
2: heck, you but, should
1: be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> the second one was not technically a trial, even though I sometimes called it was. It was an investigative hearing. Oh, on well, this I mean, one, it's semantics.
1: I Come on. Exactly.
2: It's right. semantics. <laughs> exactly right. In this one, uh, I was charged with five theological issues and one issue related to my being queer affirming. The theological issues. Oh, yeah. You wrote
1: a book about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Another book. Okay.
2: The theological issues were all bogus and those went away. But they were exactly right about me being queer affirming. And the denomination in which I'm an ordained elder is not queer affirming. It doesn't have a church of the Nazarene. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. I got you. Um,
2: The people who heard my, were at the hearing there, did not recommend that I be disciplined. And so, you know, in one sense, I quote one in that uh, I wasn't disciplined, but the case remained open. And now, just about a month ago, I've been told two people have signed papers against me on the same issue, the queer issue. And I've been told this fall, I'll go to this third event. Technically, it's the second trial, but it's...
1: Oh, that's the third one. Okay, it's coming up. Okay. All right. Well, definitely after that one. We'll, we'll get you in the okay. hole. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No, I never had that experience, but I had had, uh, w- when I went to the mission field back in the 19, uh, um, uh, 1990, my, my, my church, you know, had a little talk with me about this and then you have to line up with their statement of faith and they didn't know that I was more inclusive when it came to, uh, I wasn't a universalist yet. But later on, I did become one. But at the time, I was much more inclusive and not uh, about this idea of this notion of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They did not
1: like that. And What uh, group was this? This was an American Baptist church that was doing a local ordination for me Uh, mm -hmm. to send me as a missionary. And they were more conservative on the American Baptist church side. But okay. uh, yeah, they didn't like that. And they just said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll during, uh, ordain you, but don't, never teach that on the mission field. Never teach <laughs> that to people. Okay.
0: All, right. All right. So at the
1: time I was just not strong enough to really stand on my own. I was just like, "Well, you know, I was keeping that silent anyways. Okay. You know, what yeah, the, no. you know. So anyways, another question before we get into your book was, is what is open
2: and relational theology? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. That's something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, open relational theology is a big tent under which sit a bunch of people and movements and ideas. But the two thing that brings everybody together is, one, the idea that God is relational in the sense that God not only affects us, but we affect God there's mutual influence. And that's an idea that many, many people believe and they are shocked to discover that the most influential theologians in Christian history, like Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, they did not think that we had any influence on God. So Mm -hmm. the relational part says we influence God, God influences us. Oh, okay, interesting. the, The open part says that God moves through time with us into an open and yet-to-be-determined future.
0: Mm-hmm. And God
2: not only doesn't predestine things,
0: yes, God
2: doesn't even know with absolute certainty everything that will one day occur. Okay, so that's the open future part.
1: Okay, all right, that's interesting too. Okay, um, so let's go back to um, omnipotence. Yeah. Uh why is believing in it harmful? Um how does it impact um and, and the, a secondary question is you know what 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 problems does it create? If it's harmful, what what is, what are the problems?
2: Yeah, maybe I probably answer those together. I'll, I'll yeah, just say Yeah, go ahead. Say, yeah. Um it's harmful because it sets people up to think that a loving god will rescue them or keep them safe. And then, when they go through problems, they go through difficulties or harm, they're abused. Then they think, okay, if God is omnipotent, able to do anything, right? And yet this is happening to me, this bad thing must be the case that either God is punishing me, or God has abandoned me, or what I think is evil is really good in God's sight. And so it confuses people it sets people up to think that either god has left them in the cold or the god's a kick your butt kind of god
1: right i could see that i mean especially the first one it's like oh what where where are you oh, i have had all this tragedy <laughs> I Thought yes. you were protecting me and a, a lot of times uh a response might be well you know um um you know, maybe you, uh, didn't pray enough. Maybe you're not righteous enough, you know, spiritual enough. Maybe you need yes. to write, read your Bible more. Maybe you need to be more, more committed. You maybe try God's trying to use this to, uh, punish you and, and get you on the right track. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's teach one of the ones yeah. Teach yeah. you a lesson or something, but then, you know, then, then there's other ones that you just can't explain away. And so yeah. I guess, so I, the other, the other side of this is when, when this happens, and I, I just gave one example of it, but what, what are, uh, what are the, some of the other rebuttals to these problems that come up? Like, what, what do people say? Say, okay, well, yeah, you just don't understand. God's a mystery, but, but you know, then they blah, blah, blah. This is what, yeah. this just explains what's happening.
2: Yeah. The mystery card comes out really quickly an awful lot. You know? Yes. Right. This looks evil from your perspective, but in some mysterious way, it's for your good. Yes. Or, you think you're innocent, but really God's punishing you for some hidden right. sin or, or the one I really, really hate is. God allowed this bad thing to happen because God knew that in the future something worse would happen if this one didn't.
0: Happen. Oh,
1: I see. Yes. Okay. That's, I never heard that one. That's very <laughs> clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just something that. worse than the Holocaust. Okay. <laughs> exactly, <all right>.
2: yeah. <laughs> and it's not, it's not, I mean, the problem of evil that we're talking about here is the central question that most people have when it comes to an omnipotent God who's loving. But there are other issues as well, Uh, what scholars call the hiddenness problem. You know, if God is omnipotent and loving and God knows that a revelation of who God is would help us, why doesn't this God make it crystal clear? Why doesn't this God make the information we need for full salvation obvious? And it's not obvious to a lot of people. It's not you know, the, the sacred scriptures don't always line up with one another. People who have desire a profound religious experience, many of them never get it. And you think, well, yeah. if God's omnipotent. Right. Why doesn't God just, boom, right. make sure it happens? And I could cite other issues. Yeah,
1: that's a that's a good one, too. I thought of that one recently. Um, you know, some people, I was in the charismatic movement for many years and uh there's a lot of <laughs> wacky things going on and there's a lot of um uh, uh powerful things going on that, that I think were from god but yeah. but uh not everyone got them and you know you know you that's a great question well why doesn't this person get it and of course the standard a standard reply is that, well, they're not, you know, righteous enough. They're not, they're not committed enough. You, you know, seek the Lord with your whole heart. You must not be seeking him with your whole heart and
2: all. right <laughs> And things. you can understand if, you know, a person is not seeking God, but uh, lots of people I know intentionally seek and open themselves up to God and never get the kind of blessing they right. think God can give. And so right. You wonder, well, okay, is God abandoning you? You know, do you have what right. what's it called, unconfessed sin? You know, all right, that sort of thing.
1: all kinds of things could be right in play, right? So, and 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 these are these are kind of thoughts that really mess with your mind. I mean, yes, they're not comforting thoughts.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'll throw a couple more out there since I'm yeah. on a roll now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, since you brought up the charismatic movement or Pentecostalism, what about what I call the problem of selective miracles?
1: Mm, some yeah. people
2: seem to get a miracle; other people don't. Right. What's going on there? Does God play favorites? You know, um, some people not pray enough times. Um, that's a huge problem when you start thinking about it, or the problem. Uh, If you think it's a problem, I'll just say the issue of multiple religious traditions. Yes. You know, there's lots of people who've never heard the name of Jesus, who seem to be honestly seeking truth, who end up following, I don't know, the Buddhist tradition or Muhammad in Islam. Um, if God is omnipotent, couldn't God give them a crystal clear revelation of Jesus, and therefore, you know, every there ought to be only one religion that's obviously true to everyone? Et yes,
1: that's a great point. Yeah, and uh, I, I was a missionary to Muslims, and okay. so the standard line was, "Well, yeah, if people seek God with all their heart." They'll find him or they'll, you know, God will send missionaries or they'll have a dream about Jesus or something like that. So therefore, if they haven't had a dream about Jesus or they don't understand what the missionary is saying or whatever, then they must not be seeking God with their whole heart. Right. Something
2: (laughs) or another one. I'm sure you heard um, they're being deceived by demons and the devil.
1: Yes. They're being deceived. right.
2: Yeah, right. which always creates problems because then it's if God is truly omnipotent, the devil ought not to be strong enough to create and, obstacles to this right.
1: Revelation, right. And then why doesn't God have compassion on people who are being deceived,
2: right. genuinely
1: deceived? Yes, <laughs> yeah.
2: So right. omnipotence is at the basis for tons of theological conundrums by people who do believe in God, and the basis for many rejections of belief in God altogether
1: yeah yeah that's that's true it's uh it, it's a kind of an atheist maker i think in some yes regard. yeah i um, think so so um you talked about in your book that you know the people who defend a, a uh, I'm not i'm not that's really all powerful god let's say <laughs> there you go <laughs> okay, the all powerful god um they're always qualifying it well well yeah but that's not you know you're not seeing it right what what are these qualifications that they that they're doing yeah. And they qualify it.
2: Some of them are logical qualifications, like uh, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 397, like I said earlier, or make a round square, uh, or make um, a geometrical uh, falsity. Or um... Then there's some that are related to God's own nature. So if it's the case that God is omnipresent, then God's not able to be absent from Las Vegas this weekend. Yeah. Or if it's the case that God exists necessarily, God can't say, you know, it's been a good run, but tomorrow I'm out. Yeah. You know? uh, there's going to be certain things that God can't do because of God's own nature.
1: Okay. But All right.
2: Then there's some things that uh, arise as, quote, limitations or qualifications based on God's relation to time, for instance. So if you're a traditional theist and you think God is outside of time, Mm -hmm. then you've got a limit on God's ability to interact in time. If you're someone like me who thinks God is in time, then you've got a limitation of God being outside of time. So you sort of have to pick your choice, your qualification there. Right, right. Um, The one that I think is least recognized, but has the greatest impact on these issues is the, uh, the idea that God is a bodiless universal spirit or what mm-hmm. in the tradition we've said God is incorporeal, bodiless. Okay. Now, if that's the case, then God doesn't have the ability to lift 50 pounds with a bicep or chew bubble gum or uh, fly an airplane mm-hmm. or all kinds of things that you and I with bodies sometimes can do. Mm-hmm. And I think um, once you start thinking through the implications of that, then it should change the way you think about what God is up to in the world.
1: Right, okay, okay. So you 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 basically say at one point these qualifications kill the notion of omnipotence. Yeah,
2: I yeah. say it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. <laughs> a thousand. <laughs> yeah,
1: Because the qualifications get so long and you think of another problem and you got to qualify it, that all yeah. of a sudden it's meaningless to say God is all-powerful.
2: Yeah. And we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't um, do this to some other, some other uh, subject. So we wouldn't, if I came to you and I said, um, you know, I live in Idaho yeah. and right down the block from me, there's an omnipotent squirrel. And you said to me, <laughs> omnipotent squirrel, you got to be kidding me. Can this squirrel, uh, I don't know, shoot down an airplane? Nope. This squirrel can't. Can this squirrel be in more than one place at the same time? Nope. Can this squirrel make two plus two equal three hundred ninety-seven? Nope. And I start qualifying yeah, all these right, things. Right, right, right. And you think I'm ridiculous if I kept yeah. saying this squirrel's right. omnipotent. Right. But people do that with God all the time.
1: Right. I gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Right. So um, we we've we talked about um, a little bit about the what's what others call the problem of evil in the world, the existence of evil. And so how does that destroy omnipotence?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't destroy it in the sense that, uh, you know, you can't believe God is omnipotent anymore. You can still think God is omnipotent, but then you'll just have an incoherent view of what God's up to. Right. Uh, So I just think that if you're going to destroy
1: a a coherent view of. of Yeah, there you go. That's
2: a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, so why is that?
2: Well, because if God is omnipotent, then God could prevent any of the genuine evils that happened in the world. You know, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, and I'm still an ordained elder in that tradition, at least for a little bit longer. We'll see how long. <laughs> <laughs> um, Your days in, are
1: numbered, Tom.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in our tradition, and probably the, the American Baptist tradition you were in, we had this strong view of free will. Yes. And so we would say, you know, why didn't God stop that rape? We would say, well, the rapist has free will too. Yeah. And we thought that that somehow got God off the hook. But it doesn't get God off the hook because if someone has the power to prevent rape but doesn't Mm -hmm. do so, then we think that person isn't loving. Right. And so we not only have to say God's power isn't the power that causes evil. We have to say that God's power can't prevent evil single handedly. And that's why I think we have to get rid of omnipotence.
1: Right. I gotcha. So let's get into um, the scriptures because, you know, I. when I read my Bible when I was an evangelical, well, since since then I've learned that there's a mi- there's a lot of mistranslated words.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and as some people will probably learn today, there's a lot of lot other translated words that you may not have heard about that Tom's going to tell us about it, right? So, but yeah, the, well, you read the Bible, and uh, um, for evangelicals most most of the time, in my experience, the NIV was the the Bible yeah. Of choice. Yeah. And so you just thought this is. You know, this is uh, this is all true, right? This is the best translation in the world, blah, blah, blah. And there's all this talk about Almighty God and nothing is impossible. We had a song in church, nothing is impossible for you, blah, blah, blah. You know, God can do anything. He's sovereign. All this stuff, especially in the Calvinist uh, traditions, but even in almost every church you're talking about, yes, it, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so it's all there, right? But you're saying that it's really not there. What, what's all, what's behind that? What, what's, what yeah. the scriptures really say?
2: So if you read the new Testament and the old Testament, uh, you'll occasionally come across this word almighty mm-hmm. in the old Testament. It's a translation of two Hebrew words. One is Shaddai, as in El Shaddai, God God Almighty is how it's translated. The other one is Sabaoth, and that's preceded by several words for God, but um, that will also be translated as Almighty. Okay. Biblical scholars tell us, however, that Shaddai doesn't mean mightiness or omnipotence. It means breasts or mountains. Mm-hmm. And so to say that God is El Shaddai is to say that God is the nourishing one, the the uh, fountain of fertility, and Saba. Oh, no, I got,
1: I got, oh,
2: I got to interrupt you Okay,
1: no, wait a minute. That begs the question. That sounds like God is more female than ma- male. Mm, sure <laughs> does. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been hiding this on us.
2: What is going on here? Well, what went on is that uh, when. Uh, Greeks were translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek in the second and third century BCE. They took that word Shaddai and they used the Greek word uh, pentocrater, which means like all sustaining or all holding. And that's a little bit closer to a breast being sustaining, let's say a life of a child or something. It's not almightiness or not omnipotence. but they chose that word um also they used the same word for the second hebrew word uh sabba oath which is better translated lord of hosts or lord of the councils but Mm -hmm. it's pantocrator as well in the what's called the septuagint this second and third century bce manuscript so breasts and hosts becomes all-sustaining we're all mm, okay. providing, okay. And then nine times, or I guess it's ten times in the New Testament, the word Pantocrator shows up. And later on, Pantocrator is interpreted as omnipotent in the sixth century by Jerome, I think it is. Anyway, so we go from breasts and hosts to all sustaining, to Almighty, omnipotent, all powerful. So when we get the creeds, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that's a Latin phrase, and omnipotent is used there for almighty. And that derives oh. back from these mistranslations of scripture. Which,
1: which creed was that you you quoted?
2: That was the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed starts very similarly.
1: Similar, and that's Nicene yeah. Creed as well. Okay, that's yeah. very interesting. Okay, so it's even built into the creeds, right? That's so, right, Yes. So are those the only words or, I mean, um, is that the root cause of this or are there other words? Those are the only
2: words that are translated almighty in English. But you are right that there are a few phrases that sound like nothing is, you know, what is it, the New Testament. With humans, this is impossible. Right. Nothing is impossible. Right.
1: What about that? Right.
2: Yeah. And uh, that's a stronger case for something like omnipotence. The problem is that people who cite that ignore all the other biblical passages that talk about things that God can't do. That, that, for instance, it's impossible for God to lie, says the writer of Hebrews.
0: Oh, right, right, right. right. Or
2: you know, it's impossible. Or God, um, God cannot be tempted, says the writer of James. Uh, right. God can't grow tired, says the psalmist. Right. My favorite one is uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. When we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself.
1: Oh, right. Okay. All right. So well,
2: when we see everything's possible with, for God in Scripture, we have to also bring in all these impossibilities and then ask, okay, what's going on there? and i argue that the claim nothing is impossible for god is in the always in the context of salvation it's it's always possible for god to offer us salvation that's why i think it should be oh
1: that's right. a good point yeah I, that's the what i remembered him i think it was the rich man uh, and hmm. uh story or something
2: okay yeah like, how
1: can people be saved well nothing is impossible with god you know
2: yeah uh, yeah always yeah, exactly.
1: always in 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 the context of a discussion about salvation. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's, right. that's excellent. So um, uh, anything else about the scriptures? I mean, what, what, uh, that, that, Yeah, that's I think the, the other,
2: I think the other big thing, and this is true for not just sort of the average person in the pew, but also for biblical scholars, there are plenty of passages in scripture that says God did X, you know. God delivered the people from out of Egypt. God did this, that, and the other. Right. And people have come to the Bible with this omnipotence in mind, and then they've said, "Well, if God did this, God alone must have made it happen." So they think that God single-handedly brought people out of Egypt, or God no, single-handedly stopped the storm, or God sing yada yada yada. yada. Yeah. Um. And The text doesn't actually say that. In fact, most of the time, there is explicit creaturely factors and actors that are also identified as contributing to whatever happened. But people have just assumed that whenever God does something, it must be unilateral, single-handed, God alone. And I say in this book, we need to go back and look at what the what the scriptures actually say, and especially those that emphasize the synergy the cooperation, the collaboration, so often present in Scripture. And in those instances in which only God is mentioned, we don't have to jump to the conclusion that God alone brought it about. Just like when we see instances in which, let's say, Peter does a miracle in Acts, we don't have to assume that only Peter brought it about. We can say God helped. We can say humans helped God in making these things happen.
0: Right, and that's okay. going to
2: help in a lot of circumstances in terms of interpreting scripture. Right.
1: So you're saying that we we kind of start with a lens that of of all powerful God, and then we look at these passages and read into them that that what's yes. not necessarily there. Yeah.
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. Right.
1: Yep. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I um, will go
2: so far as to make this bold claim. Okay. There's no passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God alone brought about some sort of result or outcome.
0: Right. Um,
1: What about uh, creation? What about creation?
2: Yeah. Great question. Even in creation, the spirit hovers over, quote, the face of the deep which has been translated as chaos, the Tohu Wabahu, Mm
0: -hmm. or
2: Wabahu, if you're like with the German pronunciation. Anyway, uh, yeah, even in Genesis 1, there's something there. In the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep, that deep there. That's a something, not a nothing. And Mm -hmm. so... We have grounds, and obviously when you get into the rest of that chapter, God's saying to creation, bring forth, and then creation is cooperating. So even in the creation of the universe, we don't have to think God did it single-handedly.
1: Right. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, So let's go, let's pivot a little bit. Uh, The second part of the title of your birth is the birth of omnipotence. Omnipotence. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's, let's tackle that. What is that? And uh has something to do with God being loving and uncontrolling, but let's let's unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, well, it's a new word that I made up. Okay. Ammy uh, in amipotence. Ami stands for love. We find okay. it in words like amity or amicable or uh, oh, right. the Spanish word amigo. Right. Uh, okay. and then potence yeah. means power, potential. Right. So the idea is that God's power is the power of love, uh, this particularly uncontrolling love, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I I was saying earlier, maybe before we started the conversation, that um I wrote a book, came out in twenty nineteen called God Can't.
0: Right, it's, right, right.
2: Yeah. It's written for a, a broad audience. And in that book, I lay out five things that ideas that together can solve the problem of evil. And it's been a really helpful book to tons and tons of people. But one of the downsides of writing a book called God Can't <laughs> is that a lot of people think that, well, God must or A lot of people think that Tom must be describing a God who's, you know, on the sidelines in life, up on Mars, eating popcorn. A a
1: deist-type God? Yeah, exactly. A deist-type God. Yeah, Yeah, Or,
2: you know, maybe a a taliquid God who's the ground of the universe, but not really doing anything in it.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
2: And I wanted to say, no, the God I believe in actually works in the world in ongoing relationships this God's power is loving, and it's for all creation at all times. In fact, I even go so far as to say I think God has maximal power. But even God's maximal power, because it's loving, never, in fact, cannot control anyone or anything. That's what omnipotence is all about.
1: So that's uncontrolling, powerful love is what you're saying. Yes. Because, right. because the definition of love is not to control, right?
2: That's part of it. Yep. Right,
1: yep. right. So um uh, the the love of God is is um more is the most powerful force I uh, want to uh, say uh, that. or yeah. attribute. And yeah. uh, you know so you're you're basically saying Uh, Instead of saying, "Oh, God is whole, is holy, powerful, and everything," um, actually, the most powerful thing in the concept of God is love. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. To put it technically, I put it this way: love comes logically first among all the attributes. Okay. So you'll hear people, especially professional theologians like me, they'll say something like, "Well, I." Believe God is loving, but I also think God is powerful, and these two attributes are co-equal in God.
1: Right, right. Which
2: sounds all nice and great until you they actually cash out what that means in the real world, and then almost every time love gets becomes subordinate to to power, and so they've got a sovereign God who happens to love, um, and I think we ought to reverse that. I think we ought to start with love. And then understand God's power in light of love. And therefore, this power is going to be per- pervasive, influential, but never controlling.
1: Right. Okay. So another thing that uh, objection that people make um, is that, you know, when you start talking about the love of God and, and how amazing it is, um, and then you start getting into saying things like, actually, God is much more loving and and kind and compassionate than we can ever imagine. <laughs> and, uh, but then people will say, yeah, but God is also wrath and God is judgment, judgment, uh, you know, justice and, and all this stuff. So, you know, w- w- what do you say to folks who, 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 who try to balance the love of God with the wrath of God?
2: Yeah, I think we should understand God's wrath in terms of love. So what people usually understand God's wrath, they think that every once in a while, God gets so pissed off (laughs) that God throws lightning bolts and, you know, blows things up out of anger or to teach you a lesson or whatever. I think wrath is just better understood as God's disappointment and anger when we hurt ourselves and others. But this anger doesn't lead God to throw lightning bolts doesn't lead God to punish or harm us. Um, Just like good parents can be angry with what their kids do without shooting their kids or, you know, (laughs) cutting off their arms. I think God is angry when we hurt one another and hurt the planet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, Yeah. yeah, I've always struggled with that. And, um, but one of the things that helped me uh, was, is that when the subject of anger in the, in God comes up in the scriptures uh, most, especially in Jesus, but also in the prophets, you know, it says things like, you know, I will not harbor my anger forever. <laughs> yeah. I will save you. I, you know, uh, God, God is not um, uh, there's lots of, lots of scriptures and there's a couple of them. I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's lots of scriptures that say that, right. Yes. Uh, this is not a, an absolute kind of anger that, that could produce, uh, in my mind, could that could produce a, a eternal conscious torment for people who, uh, you know, don't measure up at the end at the judgment day, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons I'm against the view of hell uh, that most people have. I like to say, however, that there are natural negative consequences that come when we say no to God's love. Mm -hmm. It's not that God is punishing us by getting out the stick and hitting us over the butt. Right. But when we say no to that, which is going to promote what what is good, we're in essence saying we want something less than the good. And that's a natural negative consequence. So I actually think that God is calling us in this life and the next, always to live a life of love and never punish is anyone at any time but when we say no to love in any moment, they're just natural negative consequences when we do so.
0: Yeah,
1: I, that's, I, I, I like to explain it that way too. I mean, mm. the consequences is not, is not like the same thing as God saying, okay, I'm going to uh, orchestrate these problems in your life. No, right. <laughs> you, uh, if you decide to be uh, a violent person, then you're going to get violence thrown right back at you. You're going to have yeah. a lots of problems. You're going to get in trouble with the law, whatever it is, right? All kinds of things, right?
2: I'm totally with you. Yeah, and and so. that idea that God is the one, you know, throwing the negative consequences right. at you, it just stems right back to our earlier discussion about omnipotence, you know? People just have this default view that whatever comes their way must either be caused or allowed by an omnipotent God. right? But once you take off omnipotence, then you can bring in these natural negative consequences.
1: Right, I see. Okay. So um, I'm curious, what is your view of, of the evil one? Hmm. We're talking about the problem of evil. Well, the Bible talks about the evil one, Satan. Do you think that's a literal uh, truth uh, or is that something else going on?
2: I'm agnostic on the belief in the devil and demons. Okay. If the devil and demons exist, then the devil and demons are localized beings with limited powers and abilities. And apparently they are something like spiritual beings, you know, I don't know for sure, but that's Mm -hmm. the way they're usually depicted. If they exist, then they're just part of the negative influences in the, in the universe. If they don't exist, I'm fine with that too. And then I just account for what people usually call demonic oppression as, you know, psychological or chemical imbalances or structural evils or whatever. So um, my theology works if there's a devil or not.
1: Yeah. I, I'm very similar to you. Um, one of the things that uh, I came to the conclusion of is that um the Bible, actually, I believe, uh, the word is more accurately translated, at least in the beginning, uh, as the adversary, yeah. uh, not you know like um, this ultimate evil uh, being, but the um, the notion that in life there are these adversaries that we have to face, you know, the negative thoughts, the the uh, the evil that we we encounter in the world. Right. Um the harm that people bring to other people, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes people get really caught up in that and they it it seems like they're being controlled by some power, but it's really there it's a psychological thing that's going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think there's a lot to that. Right. And, and right. I'm with most scholars I know who think that the scriptures reveal uh, reveal a development in the idea of the devil and, and demons yes over time right
1: over time that the notion was developed until it kind yeah. of morphed into something that it wasn't
2: originally like the idea of really, hell you don't get yeah. any tradi- the right. view of hell in the old testament no yeah the, right the it comes pit.
1: in right it comes in uh, after yes. between the testaments and then it doesn't come into the new testament at all it comes in outside the new testament
2: right right yeah
1: so, um, yeah, I, and I say that, uh, what I said before about uh, Satan or or the devil, is, uh, from personal experience, I was uh, clinically depressed when I had my faith crisis, and um, some people, uh, I started to think, oh, I must be possessed, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because all this prayer and all this stuff is not working. What's going on, right? Yep. And so, you know, I went to someone, and they prayed, oh, yeah, I think you have a uh yeah a mini demon or something I'd be able to I'll cast it out and you know, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. some kind of a spirit of depression or something you know well you know he does his thing and I don't get better I, I get worse right nothing happens right and then the only the thing that hap- that that helped me was going through cognitive behavioral therapy mm. with uh you know some therapists and reading a book that really helped me you know, sort through the negative thinking I was going through and, and how to combat that. So it's like yeah. I took on the adversary from this therapy and encouragement and psych, uh, psychological and logical angle, not a spiritual angle. And that's how I overcame yeah. my depression. So that's, you know, that's yeah. when I'm that's being, honory, that. yeah
2: when I'm being honorary with people who are really into demon possession and all right. that sort of stuff, right. I say, isn't it ironic how therapy, education, and medicine can affect these demons, but sometimes your prayers can't. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, right. Well, how do you explain that, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Anyways.
1: So, Okay, so um, uh, so I think you're saying that um, omnipotence uh, solves the problem of evil. Is that correct?
2: Well, getting rid of omnipotence is essential. Um, excuse me, getting
1: rid of, of it, right. Understanding yeah. that it's not true, right, yeah. solves that, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so obviously it just means that uh, we'll go ahead and explain how you would how how, how would you um, how does that work out?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I just up and say God is strong, but simply can't control anyone or anything. I think that's the theoretical foundation you have to start well from. I think God is a loving God. And God suffers with us and empathizes with us in the midst of pain. That's actually part of relational theology, what we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier. Yes, I think God is working to try to heal to the greatest extent possible, but God isn't omnipotent to be able to heal single-handedly. Therefore, God works with factors, actors, forces, some traditional, some non-traditional in our lives to try to heal us. Some healing won't occur until afterlife but when we do see healing here and now we can say God acted and there was creaturely cooperation I also think that God takes whatever happens to us and try to squeeze some good from the bad that God didn't want in the first place yeah yeah so that Christians who say well look my life ended up better because I went through my divorce or I lost my job I say, no, no, it wasn't God orchestrating all of that, but God works with you in creation to try to squeeze something good from the stuff God didn't want in the first place. And then the final part is to say that to solve the problem of evil also means that we participate and work with God in overcoming evil with good. So this might offend some of your listeners, but I think God can't win unless we cooperate with god for love to win mm-hmm. some theologies will say well god is working and god invites us to collaborate but mm-hmm. they kind of give the impression god's going to get the job done even if we never lift a finger right in my view because god's not omnipotent god is working but we have to cooperate if love is truly going to win
1: okay all right that's good yeah i like that um especially like what what you're saying about um God takes a bad situation and you know finds a way to make some good out of it. I mean that's mm. a lot I think a lot of people who go through religious trauma or depression or you know deconstruction, right? It's a very, you know, difficult experience. Yes. It's like a divorce or something like that. You're, you know, it's like you're divorcing your community or something, your yep. your movement, right. And, and then no one wants to go through that again. And no one says, Oh yeah, I had you go through that because that was my will. No, I didn't want you to go through that. I didn't want you to be there in the begin with, but, you know, but now that it's happened, you know, let's, let's build a new life and use that to help you, whatever it is that you're doing. A lot of times people are, "I, I, I love what I'm doing helping people going through deconstructing conservative Christianity and, and, yeah. and trying to help, help them rebuild something. And I couldn't do that unless I went through all those uh, terrible experiences. It's just yeah, like, a right. you know, so that's, that's, that's a good way to, to put it. So just to cap on it, what, if an atheist shot back at you and said, ah, I still think the problem of evil is just, I mean, this, you're, you're just, I don't know. They might say you're just, um, you know, hedging God and making him less just to solve this problem, how would you respond?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I get that sometimes. Someone will say, well, if God's not omnipotent, then it's just not God.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, right. right, And I always
2: laugh because, you know, if, if I'm right about what the scripture says about God, you don't have an omnipotent God there. So really what the atheist or sometimes is believers really what they're doing is they're saying I'm so committed to this particular vision of God that if you take it away from me there can't be any other vision
1: yes and, right yeah
2: in yeah, fact this, I, yeah I see this happen with people who are going through deconstructive process they have a picture of God presented to them by their church or by the culture or wherever they end up realizing that picture sucks. They can't yeah. believe in that God anymore. Right. And then they think, well, if I can't believe in that God, I can't believe in any God. Yeah. And I want to come in and say, you know, I've got this open and relational vision of God that fits with the best of scripture. It matches your deepest moral intuitions. It makes sense logically. It fits with science. It fits with your experiences of evil. And I just lay it out there and said, This is a beautiful vision of God that you can embrace if you want to. I'm not forcing you. But let me present it. It's far better than that view that you rightly rejected from your past.
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I would argue it's also more historical.
2: <laughs> I think so. You know, I'm obviously... No, I- we're picking and choosing because there's some parts of the tradition that you know i reject like when jerome you know, well, translates the word into omnipotence but well, when yeah. i
1: say historical i don't mean you know selective his- history i mean going back as far as you can to the original intent yeah the scriptures and jesus teachings and so forth so yeah
2: i think it aligns very well with jesus's teachings
1: yeah,
0: right. I, I think do think sure. there's some yeah.
2: portions of scripture that it doesn't align with. Like mm-hmm. I think there's some portions of scripture that paint God as unloving. I think the writers just simply got God wrong in those instances. Yeah, uh, but I think it fits the majority of scripture and the God revealed in Jesus. Yeah, well that,
1: that's the point I make in my book is that right, well, right. You know, we, we don't have to accept everything we read in the scriptures, because uh, uh, the Jewish people, Jesus, uh, they didn't view the scriptures that way. There was a debate going on. We need to enter into that debate and say, hey, you know what, let's look at and be honest about what's good and what's bad and what's ugly. And
2: (laughs) yep. So um, one of the many parts of your book I like.
1: Oh, good, good. Okay. All right. Um, so anyways, one last question, we're running out of time. Um, so how does the belief in, let's say the all loving God, not, not controlling a limited power, love, how does that impact how we live and how we worship and how, you know, what is our faith
0: about?
2: Yeah. I mean, it impacts it in so many ways. I'll just pick up on two. All right. Um, if God is all loving, but can't control, we can actually trust that God. Mm Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, right, right.
2: That's a God whom you would actually want to be your babysitter for your kids. The God who's omnipotent and allows evil. You don't want that God to be your babysitter. Right. Yeah. The God who's perfectly loving. We can't single-handedly prevent things. And you don't have to blame that God when things go wrong. Right. That's, that's a big plus. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. A second thing is, is, you know, I started, Earlier in this conversation, I said, one of my deepest intuitions is that I ought to live a life of love. And the God who's perfectly loving is someone I can truly imitate. I can try to be like, I will want to be like that God. And that shapes the way I live my life and set my morals and my ethics. Um, In other words, this is a way to orient ourselves and find purpose by living a life of love, imitating the perfect lover in the universe.
1: Right. That's good. Excellent. Well, we've run out of time. Uh, Thank you so much, Tom, for being uh, a spiritual brew pub. Uh, um, We've had a great uh, conversation and um, I want to just shout out that your, your books uh, I've, I've read the, the, uh, the death of omnipotence and the birth of, Amipotence. And it's really good. It's excellent. It's going to, it it really helps. I mean, you're, 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 you're saying right now, some of the major points in the book, but in the book, it really gets into more detail. So where can folks find your work and this book and other books that you've written?
2: Yeah. You know, you can find my books on online retailers and uh, a few in-person retailers, but mostly online. Uh, so but you can also Amazon or do you, Amazon a, do you have a website? That, I do have uh, a website. Uh, I guess you could get it through there. Uh, my website is my full name, Thomas J. Ord. And uh, the middle name is J-A-Y. Last name is O-O-R-D.
1: Okay. All right. All right. Great. Okay. Well, thanks again, uh, uh, Tom, for being with us. Uh, folks, uh, uh, check out Tom's work and his books, um, a great scholar and theologian has really thought uh, and researched this very well. Uh, Not pulling things out of the air, folks. (laughs) So uh, this is really good stuff. So until next time, yeah, we'll see you. uh, we'll, We'll be in touch, Tom. And until next time, folks, enjoy responsibly.